Frank Wright, author of frankwright.substack.com and author of most recently, World War II Was My Religion. Is this a confession, sir? And, of course, technical difficulties are always. Yes, we have you now. Oh, good. Oh, yeah, no, I keep that for the confessional. No, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's, it, it's a quote from uh, it's a quote from Peter Hitchens. is a kind of well-known doomsayer, Peter Hitchens, kind of conservative, right liberal commentator. And he remarked upon the idea uh, of the function of myth uh, in terms of the myth of the World War II. And he wrote a book called The Phony Victory in 2018 in which he admitted that World War II was his religion. And like many of us in the West, uh, it, it, was, it performed a similar function for a lot of us. And I posted basically on the idea, primarily on the dangers of myth, but on the fact that people have need of it. So I don't think mankind will ever be need, uh, free of the need for mythology. And of course, what's interesting to me is the mythologies that he uses to replace God. And I think the world, that World War II is, is one such 20th century myth. Um, along with the three religions of man that uh, that arose during that time. Uh, now, you say in the in in the post that he actually defends Hitler. Oh no, uh, Hitchens does not defend Hitler. It's David Irving who defends Hitler. Okay. David Irving uh, advanced the controversial hypothesis that Hitler was in the same way that Stalin was unaware of most of the executions of Beria. But he wasn't personally involved in uh, the, the bullet holocaust, for example, in Eastern Europe. So that he, it, there's no record of any orders and so on. And Irving argues that this is evidence, uh, this absence of evidence is the uh, evidence of Hitler's ab absence from this um, program of extermination. Now, aside from that, uh, obviously Irving did prison time for his denial of the holocaust. Uh, but aside from this, people like A.J.P. Taylor and Hugh Trevor Roper, probably the two greatest uh, British historians of the 20th century, said that he was impossible to ignore and was a colossus of research and so on, and saying, I think it was Trevor Roper that said that no one knew more about the German side of the war than, than David Irving. Now, I wasn't concerned with Irving's revisionist view of the Holocaust. It was more over his view of Churchill, who is the central figure, if you like, of the religion of World War II. I was astonished to, to watch and read about Irving's research, which is substantiated by, I think it's the University at Eugene of Indiana, uh, by Churchill's own private uh, correspondence, showing how he used to support himself and what his views were uh, and what his policy was. And Irving said in one of his presentations that most of the biographies of Churchill are effectively hagiographies written by people who have the blessing of his family. So they, they do tend to exclude a lot of detail, pardon me, that shows him in a different light. Um, I think more generally what I wanted to make, the point I wanted to make was the dangers of something I would call leaderism, which is where you treat leaders like the gods. Right. And, you, and a sort of cult grows up around them. And again, this is a phenomenon from which we've yet to awake because people are apt to deify political leaders that they like or they think they like because they know an image of them. Uh, and they're also apt to demonize ones that they're told to dislike. Uh, this is extremely dangerous because what it does is basically it obscures reality and collapses reality into a simplistic narrative, which uh, events often don't support. This is mythology.
Matt, you say uh, the previous post is Frank Wright, uh, frankwright.substack.com, was World War worship, the dangerous myth of the 20th century. Let's talk about something that's not a dangerous myth. It's something that you and I have actually talked about and has now gotten Daily Wire talk show host Kansas Owens in a bit of trouble here. So I, I isolated the part that's important to what you and I talked about. Here's Candace, here's Candace Owens talking about basically the subject you and I covered about Homo Weimar Germany, right? And where, where, where does this perversion go, go and find its roots in? Well, Candace Owens, I like, Candace Owens, you have just reached the first plateau. She stumbled on the truth. Mike talk, uh, Parrot and Alberto talked about it on Parrot Talk yesterday. Here's just a, a highlight. This is a, this is a, a 90-minute long show, but here's just like two minutes of it. Do you know which books the Nazis were burning? And I'm asking this, and I'm telling you why it blew my mind, is because definitely something that we covered extensively, and you will cover extensively throughout the public education system, is the Holocaust, Nazi Germany. It's why so many people, when they're commenting, it seems like the only historical reference they have is, it's just like Hitler, it's literally Nazis. So that, that obsession with only referring to that historical aspect is partially because when you're in the public school system, you, you really focus on World War II and the Nazis. So I was shocked that I never learned throughout that schooling that the brown shirts, you know, the, the student activists that went around burning a bunch of books were burning books that they deemed to be Marxist and that they deemed to be overtly sexual. And one of the first and most notorious book burnings was the student-led destruction of the library at the Institute for Sexual Research. That library was founded by a man named Magnus Hirschfeld. And he was the guy who actually first coined the term transsexual. Okay, Frank Wright, you and I did an entire hour and a half show on Magnus and that book in, in particular and, the, and, and what was going on there. So now she stumbled right in, she stumbled headlong into the truth about Weimar Germany and what was really going on with the socialists and the communists who ushered in the era of perversion that we're currently dealing with today. So I just want to turn you loose on that. First of all, had you did, did you know that Candace Owens had, <laughs> had broached this subject? No, but um, I'm surprised to see that she still has a career having pointed out the truth. <laughs> and she works for the arch-Zionist Ben Shapiro. For the time being, yes. Well, yeah, wait till he finds out that she stumbled upon the truth. Now, now, now this is interesting. Mike Parent and Alberto did an entire uh, half hour on this yesterday about the Nazi book burnings. And most people just think they were burning books about the Constitution. That's not what they were burning, was it? No. If you go to the Alexanderplatz, uh, which is the site of the burning of Magnus Hirschfeld's books, you'll see a monument in the ground, and it's a glass pane, and underneath it there's, there's pictures of novels and so on. Um, in fact, they may actually be actual books, and the, it gives the idea that um, it was just a generalised destruction of literature because the Nazis were ignorant who hated culture. Whereas, in fact, that was the site of the burning of Magnus Hirschfeld's library, which had some thirty to 40,000 pornographic volumes. Uh, they're captured in pictures from the time. There's a picture of a truck that's been populated by Magnus Hirschfeld's entire library with a picture of him on the side of it. His library included 1,700 illustrations by Lustmord criminals. Uh, these, were, these were criminals who had... There was a trend that arose in the sexual extremism of the Weimar Republic called Lustmord, which was sexually motivated murder, which 
focused on genital mutilation and various forms of severe, um, uh, atrocious, um, and particularly depraved murder. And the, what the murderers used to do was to commemorate their acts by illustrating them. Uh, they fetishized them. And Hirschfeld thought these were just objects of dispassionate study. Uh, and his library contained them and he would show them to people who came. He was also um, a nexus for what you might call child sex tourism with people like Christopher Isherwood arriving, whose book about Weimar um, Germany became the musical cabaret. Uh, and he went there <coughs> mainly to have sex with boys. And he admitted it himself in his own memoir of, of, of Weimar Germany, saying that for him, Berlin was about boys. And there were a reputed 300 child sex prostitution rings in Berlin, some of them living wild in the woods around them. And uh, it's been described since as a veritable paradise. And the most faithful modern history of it is a book called Voluptuous Panic by the late Mel Gordon, um, an American-based Jewish academic who was paradoxically funded by the German Cultural Goethe Institute to write his book. He's collected some of the most telling and complete uh, series of Weimar propaganda from the time that actually advertises places where you can solicit the sexual services of children in, for a variety of tastes, uh, including bestiality and so on. It, it, the depravity of the Weimar Republic should be better known to avoid um, lazy comparisons with the present day, for although the present day is depraved, it has yet to reach Weimar levels, which were so astonishingly depraved as to be shocking to even now, even to people who are habituated to um, the horrific crimes of the transgender industry, even now it has the power to shock. And I think it shows once again how once you remove the consolation myths of the 20th century, the truth is not just more nuanced, it's actually profoundly disturbing. Frank Wright is uh, frankwright.substack.com is an old and dear friend of the Mike Church Show. Please go and subscribe to his Substack. You can read all of this. I, I noticed that you're writing pretty uh, pretty regular here the, uh, these days. Did somebody find out that you were employed and cancel you? <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible for me to hold down regular employment because uh, obviously because of my reputation there, but also because I'm insubordinate. <laughs> and uh, no, but I mean, I, I, it's. I tell people. I like to tell people when they ask me where I get my ideas. I tell them I just write down what the voices tell me, and the voices don't leave me alone. Really, I mean, it took me nine months to write the series on the transgender phenomenon. So it goes from the beginnings of the um, what was effectively the first gay rights movement under Hirschfeld in 1897 to the present day and the modern industry that we see around it. And it is an industry. And it's a, obviously it's a transhumanist industry, and it's it's avowed intent is to displace God with um, surgical technology that I think is the pinnacle of consumerism, the attempt to buy a new identity uh, enabled by technological processes. So I, I write now uh, more regularly because people subscribe to me and pay me, uh, which, <laughs> I mean, I do remind them sometimes when I've got the time, I write to people who do that and say, thank you for donating your money to my wife. Although she loves money, uh, it won't improve her treatment of me. <laughs> so I, I feel like I have a responsibility to people who have been generous enough to support my work to, to produce some work of consistent standard uh, in order to, to show them that it was a good investment and I haven't forgotten them. I, I want to uh, drill down on the subject that I was just talking about last half hour here, and then we're going we'll, we're, we're to pull a, a Pepper Mizaki and circle back to this. I was talking about last segment here. All right, we're on a decline. We're on a decline here in the Western world. The English-speaking world is on is on a decline. You're, you're right. We're not where Weimar Republic was. Our elites are. 
I think the Delicious. elites, the, our elites are. The hoi polloi is not quite there because the, the hoi polloi is still coasting on the smoldering remaining graces of Christendom, okay? There's still enough residual grace there that the, that the hoi polloi, your average Joe Sixpack or whatever you call them in England, still has some sense of right and wrong. It's not where it should be, but he do, it, but he does still have a sense. So I was talking last segment here. We are governed here in the United States by the regime leader Biden, who was thrown open the borders, uh, our southern border. Every criminal element south of that border, and now we find out even across the ocean, is my final way to cross the ocean, has been coming through this border here. We now have young girls who are walking on jogging tracks at universities in the southern United States being clubbed to death by Venezuelan gang members here. Inner cities across the United States, New York, Chicago, L.A., Baltimore, New Orleans, name it, were already havens for crime as a result of American liberals revolutions of the 1960s. This just exacerbates it. Now you introduce a foreign-speaking element, doesn't even speak the gang member, the gangbangers' language. So now you you, you, you introduce the Tower of Babylon here, (laughs) Babel into this. And my statement to the audience was, what are we going to do? If we can complain about it all we want, how are we going to fix this problem? And well, I- the, the, the response to the problem, there's, there's a, multiple, um, a multidimensional crisis facing what you might call the United States empire. <clears throat> Whether you like it or not, uh, the United States is an empire. Yes. Uh, the, the diplomatic solution to it, I've interviewed a man who is very close to the Trump administration, which I believe will be the future government of the United States. And he advises on the NATO posture and U.S. foreign policy. He's a diplomatic realist. Realism in the diplomatic sense is, is about power. So it's about restoring and preserving uh, American power at home and abroad. That's what's happening to the insane project now. I think this is the reason why what you would call the deep state have um, effectively endorsed Trump uh, as the world leaders did at Davos, saying that I think he's just a safer pair of hands. He's... Um, he's going to be entrusted with the management of the US empire out of its current crisis. As for the realism in everyday life, I think I think what we need is a return to reality. And I think that's what ordinary people, even those who don't believe in God, would demand. Uh, it's not just stability, it's the fact that they can see that the ideology that rules them has parted company with the real world. Yes. It's an ideology of fantasy, and attempting to insist on these fantasies creates the chaos that they inhabit and this and crucially they now realize the general population are beginning to realize that the current dispensation the liberal governments do not have any answers to the problems that they have created and what is more they are concerned with censoring anyone who proposes any practical solutions to these obvious problems now i think that this general situation comes from the idea of um of, uh, interestingly that you started with psychiatry and psychology I've been reading the work of Irving Kristol, who is the father of William Kristol, the architect of the project for a new American century, because I'm looking into the history of the neocons. Now, Irving Kristol was a far more intelligent man than his son, and he wrote some excellent essays. And in one, in 1997, he pointed out that almost everything in the West now is infused with an idea that came, he said, from Jewish psychiatrists of conflict resolution in the post-war period. It was an attempt, he said, to offset uh, a perceived wave of anti-Semitism that never came following the end of the Second World War. He said this idea of conflict resolution, of seeing conflict in society and between nations and between ideologies and between progressive programs and, shall we say, traditional views, 
he said that all these conflicts are viewed as a, a kind of therapeutic problem to be solved. This, he said, has led to the therapeutic idea being established in foreign relations, conflict resolution being applied to such, such problems as, a, as the Middle East, but also, he said, it has hijacked education and even corporate messaging. So this is the reason, really, why you see the everything that is framed, every, every social issue, every political issue, even crime itself is framed as a sort of problem requiring therapy, where this is where you result in a situation where the criminals um, are excused of their crimes because they're victims of society. And it is you, the true victim, who needs to be educated about that. The very phrase, get educated, is, is an articulation of the idea of education as therapy. So the widespread tendency in the West now is not to address the problems themselves. It's to address people who notice them and to categorise their noticing of the problems as a form of sickness that needs to be remedied by psychological therapy. And that therapy will come in the form of corporate and government messaging and the education system. That is a stunning and a brilliant explanation. FrankWright.substack.com. Uh, go throw him some money so that his wife can continue to ignore him. But oppress least, me. Oppress me. It, yes, oppress you. But at least he can feed you. So <laughs> I mean, She does feed me, actually, yeah. But I think that just lengthens the suffering, really. <laughs> I want to talk about, uh, uh, you, you said deal with reality here. So uh, Rush Limbaugh back in the day used to have a comedy bit that he would do in his live appearances. And he would say that if the major mass media today, if, there was a, if, if they had to write the reality news that was huge asteroid to strike the United States, women in minorities struck hardest. That's a joke, but it's actually come true. Now, climate change, climate change to strike UK and US. Women and transgender minorities hardest hit. This is the this is a complete and total departure from reality. First of all, climate change ain't happening caused by man. Climate change does happen because of climate change. And second of all, uh, it doesn't. It, it's not a thing. It doesn't have an intellect. An intellect chooses what it's going to prey upon or what it's going to talk to or what it's going to talk about. It doesn't have an intellect to choose which section of the landmass it's going to hit the hardest. It's like a volcano. You know, the, the lava's running down the hill. Oh, and the, and, and the brown people that were in the path were the, were the ones that were hit first. That's because they lived closest to it. Well, the, the, the whole use of minority rights uh, and the, the whole rights-based argument has two functions. Basically, it allows you to do whatever you like under the guise of promoting emancipation through this rights-based argument. And secondly, as the application of intersectionality to the Occupy movement showed, where you introduce intersectional rights and a sense of institutional disprivilege and so on, you have introduced the most effective means of dissolving social bonds and collective opposition to state and non-state agendas that you could possibly achieve. The rights-based agenda <clears throat> is a means of pushing any agenda that you want, even an unpalatable one, like the, the downward revision of our collective standard of living under the name of the environmental cause, right. or the global depopulation agenda under the name of, firstly, that was all about the population bomb, and then it, then it became about women's reproductive rights, which is a nice way of saying your right to terminate lives at will. So the rights-based argument is marketing. 
it's marketing for an agenda that you've already decided upon that really has nothing to do with rights at all. But if you couch it in terms of these rights, it becomes acceptable to people and it even makes them feel good to support it. And, and again, it doesn't have anything really to do with those rights. Those rights are being used for that reason. Right. Secondly, rights-based um, grievances, once they're fostered in a society as the Open Society Foundation so successfully do, what that does is it resolves formerly cohesive cultures into antagonistic factions that fight each other. And they don't fight the power. They fight each other. They, they resolve into mutually antagonistic identitarian factions. And they see politics as a means of leveraging their own mutual grievances. But this means that they're never sufficiently united. They're always disunited to the point where no one can collectively organize any opposition to the real power in the land. So it's an extremely effective form of divide and rule for the managers of society, which is what we have. So uh, we have then a situation um, where there is there is this departure from reality here. We all see it. We all know it. I, there, there was in a signal group that I am. They were all forwarding around this uh, TikTok video of this deranged lunatic woman who needs to be incarcerated in a mental asylum. She thinks she's a cat. And she wants people to treat her like a, I mean, literally treat her like a cat, including feed her cat food and what have you. And I'm going like, guys, first of all, no human being was ever supposed to witness the kind of depravity and insanity that we see on the Internet today. We're not made for this. Our intellect is not made to see God's work so perverted and to see it in real time all the time. So that's that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is, though, we should have, if we're going to have government and if we're going to have institutions, we, we should have people that are genuinely on the lookout for sicko, people that are mentally, like this is mental illness here. The mentally ill need to be removed and separated from those who aren't mentally ill. This is but the reality, and it has to happen at some point in time. The politicization of what, you, what what is correctly termed mental illness or mental disorder comes as a result of, um, I think, a, a confluence of politics and a technological society that's driven consumerism. Because what, what we have now, instead of a collective national or religious heritage, is consumer identities. I would personally argue that feminism is a consumer identity and transgenderism is an even more obvious one. What this really means is, is that people's perceptions of the world is, is largely governed by the manipulation of their desires into consumer options. They don't really engage with power in a meaningful sense, and if they did, they would find out that it wasn't listening to them. So the only real horizons that people have to manipulate a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives are the inner horizons, the, the horizons of fantasy and of desire. And I think this is the reason why you're seeing the emergence of these, these pathological behaviours added to which that mass society itself, I believe, is a pathologizing machine. The sheer scale of, of consumer global society itself drives you mad. And so it is living in an urban bug hive. And so you can see that these, the, some of the processes are cultural, some of the, uh, which come from mass society and consumerism and a mass media culture. Some of them are political because these, these, these outcomes become politicized because they're useful to power. It's useful to have people who are concerned only with their own identity fantasies and then the performance of that in public. And that becomes their major political mission, their sexuality, their imagination, their fantasies and their and their willingness uh, to effect political change is really restricted to inflicting their own desires upon other people. 
And that is really <laughs> inflicting their own desires on other people. Folks, I'm going to have to let Frank go, but we're, we're going to get him in smaller doses uh, this year. Uh, as But you're going to get in front of a lot more ears. So a lot more people are going to go to frankwright.substack.com. Uh, on Friday, we launched uh, the nationally syndicated version of the show. We start in Atlanta, Georgia. And in the first two weeks or so, I will be calling you back, my friend, because I can't wait for Atlanta to get an earful of you. So Oh, lovely. Tell them to visit me in the Gulag. <laughs> he is frankwright.substack.com. No Gulags for you. And uh, we will uh, we will talk to you again real soon, Ofer. And thank you very much for being with us today. Cheer, uh, as, but you're going to get in front of a lot more ears. So a lot more people are going to go to frankwright.substack.com. Uh, on Friday, we launched uh, the nationally syndicated version of the show. We start in Atlanta, Georgia. And in the first two weeks or so, I will be calling you back, my friend, because I can't wait for Atlanta to get an earful of you. So oh, lovely. Tell them to visit me in the Gulag. <laughs> He is frankwright.substack.com. No gulags for you. And uh, we, will, uh, we will talk to you again real soon, Ofer. And thank you very much for being with us today.